from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. This week, we're joined by Ryan Orsinger. And uh, Ryan, you work uh, with uh, CodeUp here in San Antonio. That's right, Brad. That's right. So tell us a, a little bit about your background and uh, how you've ended up on a cybersecurity radio program. Sure, sure. So I've been in IT professionally since 2007 or so. Started doing running networks, running IT operations for small, medium-sized businesses. Uh, at the same time, developed websites, sold websites, small web apps, and eventually we started working into CRM systems, like uh, managing client relation systems, uh, Microsoft SharePoint, some stuff like that. Uh, ended up doing more and more development over time and moving away from uh, the hardware side of things. So you've now gone into teaching people mm-hmm. how to program. That's that's correct. So how, how long have you been with uh, CodeUp? I've been with CodeUp for uh, almost three years now. Almost going on three years. So one of the one of the early ones there. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Maybe one of the first instructors. Um, I'd, I'd say part of the old guard. Yeah. Yes. So uh, for for those that uh, live in San Antonio, they may have seen a billboard around town, mm-hmm. uh, but they may not know any more uh, about that about Code Up than that. And for those outside of the San Antonio area that are picking us up on iHeart Radio or uh, picking this, this up and rebroadcast via iTunes or Pocket Casts. Uh, tell uh, everybody a little bit about CodeUp. Um, it's at least three years old, but what does it do? Sure, sure. What CodeUp is is a, a career accelerator, and, and really it focuses on learning programming as a way to enter the, the programming industry, enter the IT industry to build software. Uh, the Students coming in, some of them have a hobby background or a professional background that overlaps with programming in some way, and some of the students are brand new. They're computer, computer savvy, computer literate, but they really want to learn to be producers rather than consumers. You guys run class segments, and how long do the, the students go through a class to go from kind of day zero until they're, they're demoing their coding and maybe going off to get a job somewhere? Sure. The, the Code Up program itself is four months long. It's intense. It's nine to five every single day. And the program actually starts before the first day of class, right? So before we allow our new students into the class, they've got to complete 40, 80 hours worth of pre-work. So they've got to demonstrate to us not only that they can apply and pass like a logic test and just can you think straight. Uh, we've got uh, about a week, two weeks worth of work. Uh, to prepare to get everybody on the same page before we start the the instruction, actually. Yeah, no, that's uh, good. I've I've been involved uh, on and off as a, a mentor for the program, and uh, as uh, Ryan was saying, folks come in with a kind of diverse background. One of the folks that I I mentored in the program was a business owner. He owned a a web based company, and he's been hiring developers and and managing developers for years, but. Uh, he had a, a hard time necessarily always uh, understanding how to scope things and how to size things and and really how to communicate clearly with his development team. So he decided to go through CodeUp so that he could learn the language and the vernacular and the things at a, a higher level of detail uh, so that he could work better with the, the rest of the team that worked for him. I thought that was a really interesting and kind of admirable from a leadership perspective yeah. um, to, to take that challenge on. 
Who was that, may I ask? So uh, he he owned a, a Bitcoin-related uh, gambling business. <laughs> so I won't name names yeah, on the air Yeah, I know here. exactly who you're talking about. Yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, super interesting guy. Yeah, um, big time. And, yeah, uh, and the, interesting how he, he kind of stumbled his way into that online business that he was running. International man of mystery. Yes, yeah. yes he is. So if you're listening out there, uh, thanks. It was uh, fun to work with you as a, a mentor, and uh, hopefully you're working better with your dev teams now. So going through um, and learning computer programming, uh, there's the, the right way to learn it, um, and then there's the, the wrong way to learn it. And when I say that the wrong way, this is uh, kind of how Ryan ends up here now on a cybersecurity radio program, because most of the, the things that hackers do is find flaws in software. Uh, and if we're not writing good software to start with, it makes it much easier for the hackers to uh, dig in and, and um, do bad things to the the software that you've written. So, uh, in the curriculum, my understanding, code up, you guys teach uh, PHP, which is uh, for those listening out there, the kind of number one web application language. Um, WordPress is the number one web application platform. It's written in PHP. There are also a number of other popular frameworks that are, are in PHP as well. Uh, Drupal being another, mm-hmm. and with that type of uh, use out there on the internet it's one where we always have a shortage of php programmers um, that can then go build the uh, more complicated things that people are looking to do in uh, web frameworks like wordpress and drupal these days from that the teaching uh, php there uh, can you go through it and help uh, i mean it's pretty clear with the usage of work of php out there why it is the primary language that you teach but uh, what else makes PHP a good language for uh, students to come in and work with and learn on? Hmm. That's a that's a good question. Um, fundamentally, we at CodeUp we teach how to think and work like a software developer. I mean that's the that's the plan, and we have to have some language to do that in. Uh, so there are actually two course offerings. One is in PHP, another is in Java. Uh, I'll speak to PHP since you asked. Uh, PHP is the it's a big dog language, and it's got uh, a lot of history. It's old enough to drink. It's 21 years old at this point. And uh, major, major websites are built in PHP. Uh, Facebook, for one, tiny one you may have heard of. Um, the benefits of the language itself are it, it's pretty easy to write the code such that it can, su- such that it can be read by a non-coder. So I say that's that. Useful. Yeah, I say that so that uh, you know, uh, some, somebody doing QA like quality analysis or quality assurance, right, can can read over that. Uh, for somebody learning the language, it's pretty straightforward. It's very forgiving, very forgiving language. Uh, it doesn't doesn't scream at you, and uh, it tries to figure out, tries to read in between the lines, which programming languages don't really do a good job of in general. But uh, yeah, PHP tries to. Tries to make things easier for the uh, the intro intro developer. Yeah, this is is one where uh, and we've done a number of different uh, cyber uh, talk radio programs at this point on education and learning these things. And uh, one of the common themes that's come up is that learning a computer programming language is just like learning a foreign language. And some of those languages require you to speak in exactly perfect grammar. Like right. if you're going to learn C. Right. 
and your grammar's wrong at all, the compiler's going to throw a fit and give you a bunch of errors and warnings and all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That's interesting, as you say, with PHP, very forgiving. This is like two adults having a conversation in English. If we don't use perfect grammar, we're both going to understand each other still. You still get errors. You still get errors, right? But uh, it's a it's a PHP is a good beginner's language. It is has all the bells and whistles you need, and you can make you can if you've got enough time and a large enough team, you can build something the size of Facebook with it. Yeah, and so this great uh, power with PHP and the ease of use. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where we we also then end up seeing out on the internet. It's got high popularity. Great power, great ease of use, um, and with great power doesn't always come great security. Right. So we we see all sorts of PHP related security problems out there. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. When when folks are first learning to to program um, in PHP. Now I know uh, with CodeUp, your goal there is to produce developers that will write good software that businesses will be uh, happy to have them writing code for them. Uh, what are some of the kind of security fundamentals that you go through and help these uh, folks that are learning to develop software? Uh, not only do you teach them how to make an application that does something, but you all teach, my understanding is, how to keep apps safe as well. Right, right. So the primary focus of CodeUp is building things, building applications that accomplish goals with with software. It's not a, It's not necessarily a security program, but we have a, we have a duty. To provide the to to produce developers who don't take shortcuts and who produce the safest possible software they can with the tools and constraints that they have in front of them. Uh, so uh, we've got we can get into the to the weeds uh, a little bit later, get into the details of all that. But the what it really comes down to: new developers learning software need to focus on fundamentals and make sure that they're not taking shortcuts that can compromise security. That's the biggest security risk. Other than any specific named security risk, the biggest security risk is taking shortcuts. Yeah, and for, for those listening, I think we, uh, as we're diving into PHP here and, and talking about programming of that, um, there's a uh, top 10 list of the most common web application vulnerabilities out there. It's called the OWASP Top 10. We'll, uh, let you know what that acronym really stands for, and uh, maybe we'll, we'll deep dive into uh, some of those top 10 uh, after the uh, bottom of the hour news traffic and weather update. But, uh, so, Ryan, going through as a, a being in IT and tech for a while, have you uh, read XKCD before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for, for those out there not uh, familiar with it, it's uh, a kind of a tech comic, a little bit sarcastic, a little funny. Have you, have you heard of Little Bobby Tables? Oh, yeah. Little Bobby Tables is in our curriculum. There you go. Yeah, so this is a, a legendary comic for those that you can just Google Little Bobby Tables and it'll show up. You don't even need to look for XKCD. So uh, this one's about um, input sanitization, which uh, sounds really nerdy and boring, but w- what does that mean if I'm talking through that in a conversation here? Sure. So input sanit- sanitizing inputs. Yes. Is first step for securing things. First step to not take a shortcut. And uh, for those of you not able to look up this comic that we're that Brett and I are talking about, uh, the comic is telling it's with stick figures and it tells the story of uh, of a mother getting a phone call from the school and says, "Oh, there's a problem with your son." And uh, the the mother asks, "Oh, what's what's what seems to be the problem? What did he do?" And uh, the school says, "Well, it's he didn't do anything directly, but uh, 
right after we entered Bobby's name into uh, into our database, into our into our system, uh, we lost all of our records. We lost every record on every student, and all of our schools across the entire. You know. Yeah. And and the the punchline is uh, is that the mother in this comic named uh, named her son uh, Bobby, but then with some special characters, so special uh, uh, keyboard characters that are instructions to the computer. And because this uh, this uh, school district wasn't sanitizing their inputs, they took instructions out of a out of a number of characters, and those instructions said, "Drop all the students out of the table and, yeah. and wipe the database out." Yes, uh, and and this is one where uh, almost every application that you're writing these days has to accept user input, and that user input uh, now comes in a, a wide variety of formats. It used to be like that comic, just simple text fields. Right now, users are in almost all apps allowed to upload binary files, whether it's a photo or a video mm-hmm. or an audio clip. There's rich media interaction um, across most of the applications that are being uh, written out there these days. So input sanitization is something that uh, you can spend a whole career digging into uh, and working with. And this is uh, I mean, some of the power of PHP is there's good libraries out there that are right. built. Uh, can you explain to our, our listeners, when I say a library, I don't mean like the San Antonio Public Library building here, but what is a software library and why, why would I want to use that instead of uh, kind of writing my own book? Sure, sure. So the idea behind using a, a software library is that somebody else or a group of other human beings have already solved the problem that you're trying to solve. And what a library is is lots of code that other people have written, that other people have reviewed, that has been out in the ecosystem for long enough to get beaten up a bit and for the entire ecosystem and the industry to learn what the failure points are so that the, the team building that library can fix them. So the idea is, one, you're not reinventing the wheel, and two, you're using something that's more secure, much more likely to be secure than something that we could build from hand. Yeah, and and this is if you're not a programmer, if you're going to go, you're going to write a paper on the history of the Alamo, you may go read a bunch of books on the history of the Alamo and pull different facts and pieces of data from the the different things you're reading. That's effectively the software library. You're going to write a new application and a new program to do something. And you're going to be able to go pull from all of these other things that have already been written without having to go back to the, the very start and the foundation and do it all yourself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, for those of you just uh, hopping on the radio with us now, you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio. Uh, we've got a website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, we cover cybersecurity, uh, technology, uh, and other current topics in the computer world, uh, along with our workforce development and talent education. This week, uh, I'm joined by Ryan Orsinger, uh, one of the most senior instructors at a CodeUp that uh, teaches software development uh, to lots and lots of folks here in the San Antonio area. And um, I think from a, a coding accelerator learning facility, they've uh, done an amazing job of producing folks that write quality code when they get out of this program. And that was intriguing to, to me. Um, and I think it was going to be intriguing to our audience, which is uh, how Ryan got here today. If you missed the uh, first few minutes of the program, uh, you can listen to our rebroadcast and replay. It'll be online on Tuesday uh, following uh, this weekend here. 
you can pull that up on YouTube, uh, iTunes, and uh, Pocket Cast, depending on what type of device you uh, happen to be listening from. So Ryan and I were talking through uh, a little bit of how they teach uh, programmers to be safe and secure, and, and he said that that shortcuts are the, the bane of, of where bad or software with security problems usually come into. So what are some of these other shortcuts um, you, you see folks commonly taking and that you, you teach folks to avoid? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. So uh, generally programmers want some shortcut because we're lazy, right? We want to solve a problem once and not solve it again. And that's a fairly good ethic when we have uh, applications that re- run consistently and reliably. But the trouble comes when there's a right and a proper and a safer way and a less risky way to accomplish a goal, like taking inputs from a user, like username and password, for instance, or when somebody's signing up for a brand new account, username, password, email, et cetera. And and we talked a little bit about sanitizing input, and one of the uh, the other topics is is escaping the output. So I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, Let's just say that we've got our web application and we've managed to to have our users put some put some data in a form fill out a form and write actually try to write code in that form and that and the data that they that's in that form has made it into our storage it's made it into our database now it's time for us to output that data on the screen say we're sending messages or a guest book or something like that or a wall like a social sharing wall well when it's time for our application to output that code or output what we think is text, you know, somebody's comment, then we need to make sure that we're not outputting and running somebody else's code that they wrote on our website, on our web application, which then we would be responsible for dealing with the negative effects of that. So escaping outputs is, is another large uh, topic along with sanitizing inputs. Yeah, and that the, the escaping outputs uh, can also be, if you don't do that well, you can deliver... Uh, malicious code to somebody else's web browser. So the mm-hmm. people that are on your website, evil hacker can get that data through your input filter. And right. then if you don't check it on the way out, then you could deliver that down to the hapless victim that happens to be the next person on your website. And right. then their their computer has a problem because they went to, to your website. This is uh, as you're out there on the internet and uh, you end up downloading malware. Um, it, we uh, a drive by attack. So if you've Ever heard about this where these ad networks, um, and many of you may run an ad blocker to stop some of these uh, things these days, but ad networks have, because uh, they have to allow rich media in their ads, they take images, they take animations, they do all these sorts of things. Um, malicious hackers have uh, figured out, in sometimes in those ad networks, how to bypass that um, output filtering and output validation and those ads have been downloaded into your web browser as the, the hapless victim. Uh, and just by visiting a website and having an ad pop up, you can get your computer infected there uh, through that type of attack vector. As, as we're going through uh, here, and we, we talked a little bit about software libraries. Uh, sure. Yeah, and so software libraries um, have versions and dates. And, and so if, if I'm going to write an application and I'm going to, pull software libraries in? Do I just download the library once and incorporate all that code? Or is there a right way to, to do that? So if people are patching and updating and maintaining these libraries, my, my code benefits from that going forward. Well, I, th- I think you hit it at the end there. The idea is 
when using a software library, vet the code, vet the library, make sure that it's reputable, that the maintainers and the contributors of that code are, are reputable individuals, um, and do your homework on a library before you start using it. Yeah. Once you do start using that library, it's critical to stay on top of updates and, and to read up on each new update uh, that, 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 that the library uh, puts out. Uh, it, it, there may not be a convenient moment right now today to update, so we might do it a little bit later like this weekend, but let's bring everything up to date so that you're not running out-of-date software. The longer the software has been out in the, in the ecosystem, the longer the bad guys have had to try and figure out how to compromise it. Yeah. And yeah, with these with libraries, as you're going through, you want to include them or link them. Those are two different ways to, to phrase that. Uh, rather than highlight it and say if there's a function inside the library, you don't want to just copy and paste that function into your code because um, then right. it makes it very difficult to update, maintain, and, and patch uh, rather than uh, being able to just take the library and, and include it or link it depending on how your language works. Uh, to benefit from most updates out there coming from the software community. If I'm going to I'm going to write an app that has uh, users that can sign up and you can create an account. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any set of best practices around account creation? Oh gosh, yeah. Um, there's a there's a long list for dealing with uh, ensuring that creating a brand new account is safe. Uh, one of the most common that we need to make sure that we're doing is what's called hashing our passwords. So whenever we, whenever our application gets passwords from a user, when they're signing up or when they're logging in, we need to hash those passwords so that we're not saving them as plain text in a database. So that in case there's that data makes it out anywhere, it looks like gibberish and it doesn't look like somebody's super secure password fluffy one or whatever. Yes. Right. Yeah. So for, for, uh, yeah, those of you, um, out there, I'm sure you've all had at this point an email from some company that you've had an account with that said, we're sorry, our system has been hacked and your password's <laughs> been exposed. Yeah. They were not hashing your password. That's right. If they, they sent one that said our system has been hacked and your your password hash has been exposed, then they they will they were hashing. But in many of these cases, um, this was a, a very large problem for years uh, with websites not uh, hashing passwords. It's still a, a good size problem. So yeah. um, if you, you're a business owner and, and you have a website with accounts where folks can sign up, you should ask your development team, are our passwords hashed or not? And if they have a blank look on their face, is hash something I eat for breakfast? It's not. It's something they need to do with the passwords. And uh, so they should be able to to answer that for you. So uh, if we were going to even just send that hash back and forth over the Internet, though, should we send it with VHDP? Or is there something else we should be doing just from a, a transmitting usernames, passwords, and data? Right. Right. We need the most secure channel that is possible. Uh, when we're sending data to and from a web application. Uh, take your, your bank website. If you do online banking, when you log into your bank, uh, the first part of the Internet address is HTTPS, right? Rather than HTTP, the S is, means that uh, we're going for security, right? We're going for safety there. Um, the idea is that that, that connection is encrypted uh, rather than if somebody was able to listen to your traffic, say, like, over a coffee shop, over the same internet connection, 
siphoning up your traffic, they could just read all the data to and from. Yeah, which is not what you would want to have happen um, with all the folks in the coffee shop if you're browsing your bank website. Right, right. And that's maybe don't check your bank from a public Wi-Fi. That'd be a good good uh, tool and trick there for our listeners. Yeah, that's one that, that we recommend, uh, I mean, all, all the time on here. It's things you can do to keep yourself safe if you're out and about on a public Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> look into a, a VPN service, something that will encrypt and tunnel all of your traffic up to somewhere safe and, and block um, anything from uh, those devices that are sharing that public Wi-Fi network with you. So we're going to go ahead and take a break here for the news, traffic, and weather update at the bottom of the hour. Uh, when Ryan and I returned uh, on CyberTalk Radio, we're going to uh, dive some more into the uh, OWASP Top 10. We'll uh, share with our audience a little bit about what that is, why it came about, and why it's important for the uh, folks in Ryan's class to have an understanding of. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Ryan Orsinger, who works as a, one of the senior instructors at CodeUp here it's a, in San Antonio. It's a coding academy uh, that teaches people not only how to write software, but to write software safely. And I appreciate that as an employer that hires software developers because if uh, you write code and create security problems, you may make things easier and faster to actually all break down. So uh, before the break, we talked through some of the background of uh, what CodeUp is, how it got started. Uh, you can listen to that on our rebroadcast, which will air on Tuesday. Uh, you can also check out all of our other past episodes covering topics uh, from artificial intelligence, security, um, all the way through to uh, what some of the students in the San Antonio area and nationwide are doing in a cybersecurity uh, defense game called Cyber Patriot. It's a team sports for kids uh, to actually learn to protect computer infrastructure. So uh, we had uh, had a discussion about software programming and uh, PHP and web applications. And uh, coming through with that, there's a... A top 10 list of bad security things that can happen when you're developing a web application. It's called the OWASP Top 10, and uh, we said that we were going to dive in deeper in, into that uh, here after the bottom of the hour break. Uh, so you're joining us in a segment where we're going to go through uh, 10 common security problems uh, that folks have when they're writing web applications. So this will be relevant if you're a software developer. Um, you should know what all of these are, and if you're hiring software developers, you should be able to ask about these, and the developer that you're hiring uh, should be able to have an understanding and a, and a conversation about them with you. And they should be able to explain things, uh, their understanding of them, and how they uh, mitigate them when they're writing applications themselves. Um, if they're not familiar with this top 10 list, uh, then uh, they're one of the folks out there that's writing the scary software. So... Uh, before the, the break, we had actually covered uh, number one on the list, which is uh, injection. And we had uh, joked uh, about, and Ryan told the story of a, a comic uh, called Little Bobby Tables from XKCD. Uh, you can look that up on Google um, on the Internet. That's a very popular one. It'll be pretty easy to show up in the image search. 
And uh, we actually also covered number two on the list, which is weak authentication. So this is uh, making sure when you're writing software that you uh, create and store those passwords securely. Um, we've all had the notices from some website over the years that our password's been exposed, and those folks were not mitigating these things. Uh, number three on the list is a, an acronym, Ryan. It's XSS. What does that one mean? Uh, that stands for cross-site scripting. And ultimately what that means is if our... Uh, application is taking inputs because all useful applications take inputs from users. Uh, we want to make sure that we're not, it, along with somebody's comment on our site or whatever they're typing, uh, that we're not allowing them to actually write code in there because we don't want to. We don't want to serve that code up for them. Uh, so, essentially, the idea behind that is we need to make sure that uh, that we're not uh, just giving uh, the bad guys a platform and a platform off of our tool. Yeah. So this is uh, one that's been in the top 10 for as long as I can remember. And these lists are updated um, from time to time. And, and uh, this one is hung around, and it's still number three on the list. Uh, yeah. So it's a tricky one. Um, it's one that if you, you get an application security audit, um, you and uh, you've got a big complicated app, there's probably some spot somewhere in there where one of your folks has made a mistake. Um, there's some good security tools to test for this, and uh, you should be running those on your public-facing applications and uh, have those checked and then go back through and figure out how to, to uh, minimize or mitigate. So number four on the list, insecure direct object references. So these, uh, some of these things are very nerdy and specific here. Uh, we, we had a discussion just about this insecure direct object reference during the, the break of uh, what does this one exactly mean? Right. It, it sounds like something very programming specific, but really what it means is say you're, say you're, on, your, uh, say you're on a social media website, you're on your own profile, and you see in your, uh, in your URL, you, know, you see your profile name, and you see some, some other data in that, in that Internet address, Imagine you go up there and you type something else in to somebody else's name or some something some other piece of data. Uh, we don't want you to be able to see somebody else's profile as if you were them, right? Uh, this means hiding hiding things that shouldn't be seen, right? We shouldn't be able to go to the to your bank's website once you're logged in, change something about the URL, like if you notice the account number and end up seeing somebody else's account. Yeah. So this. Yeah. So the the victim of this, if if I was a victim, I might get an email again from some right. company saying right. we had a vulnerability in our website that allowed session hijacking. A user was able to masquerade and log some uh, in as you, and they did bad things to your account. Right. So that one sounds bad, and Pretty folks bad. should make sure that they take care of that one when they're writing their software applications. So number five. Um, and I thought this one was kind of uh, interesting to be in the, the application programming list because uh, this one feels like it almost crosses through to some of the system administration uh, aspects of things. So uh, this one's broadly called security misconfiguration, which sounds mm. like a catch-all bucket. But as I was uh, reading through and taking a look at this one, uh, it talked uh, in, in there about making sure that as you're running the web server, setting up the, the system, 
that you're doing that properly. I guess for programmers, um, often end up doing some sysadmins. So this sounds uh, like one that I guess kind of bleeds over into both worlds these days. It does. It does. The, the first thing that, that comes up for me on this one is uh, essentially in when we're building web applications, we have to have database passwords, right? We have to have a user in, in the database. that And uh, a common shortcut uh, with, with um, developers that aren't terribly security-minded is to use the same kind of administrative access for every application they build. And that, that ends up being, um, I would consider that a misconfiguration yeah. because each separate application should have its own user. And that, say we have two applications running on our server. We have a, a company intranet and we have a CRM system. Yeah. If they have the same database password, then if one application's compromised, they're both toast. Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, because the, the database supports multiple users, right, so right. I should have an administrative user that's not used by either of my applications. Correct. And then I should have a a, a intranet user that has access to the intranet tables and a CRM user that has access to the CRM tables, uh, but not. There's no reason for either of those apps to have access to everything in the database. Right. That's an that's an easy easy configuration to, to solve for. Yeah, and I think this is is one again as uh, Ryan introed. He said the number one cause of security problems is software developers are lazy and they look for shortcuts. It's a lot of work to have three user accounts and to keep those things separate and safe, and especially if you're building many applications because as you get into a business and you start thinking about all of a sudden all of these. Um, processes that we've enabled with software now and and even a small business might have 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 software applications some of them you've written in-house or hired someone to write Uh, some of them you've bought off the shelf or you subscribe to via software as a service so the number of applications uh, out there these days is uh, across almost every business is more than we can count on our fingers and toes so number six on the list sensitive data exposure uh, mm. So we we discussed this one a little bit uh, before the bottom of the hour break. Uh, if you missed uh, the first half of the program uh, today, you can uh, go back and listen to that on our rebroadcast on Tuesday. If you happen to be listening to this on iTunes or YouTube right now um, and you jumped forward to the second half of the program, uh, go ahead and pop back and you'll be able to uh, learn a little bit more about the, the sensitive data exposure uh, as we uh, discussed that one before the the break, uh, number seven on the list is missing function level access control. Uh, so uh, this sort of sounds like the database one and that security misconfig, but it sounds right. a little bit different. Can you kind of dive in and explain that? Right, and, and the first example on 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 this uh, basically is that I, that comes to mind is logs, application logs. Right, if we're writing logs of that that keep a track keep track of all of our errors that keep track of when an error happens um, and what circumstances t- what time that happened etc sometimes those logs may have very very sensitive data in them and we don't want those logs to be accessible on the web along with our application yeah uh, we want those logs to be stored on the file system of the server backed up in a safe secure way in a manner that's not publicly accessible that would yeah. be disastrous. Yeah, you should never be able to go to a website and go to whatever www.website.com slash error dash log dot text. And like that should yeah. that should return a 404 error, um, that which is a file not found. If that returns the actual error log for the website, uh, 
um, that one's not good. And this sort of ties back some of that sensitive data exposure. This is number seven is basically saving that sensitive data to the bad area on the disk. Number six is like if your website returns an error message, you should suppress that message back to the user because it may contain all sorts of database strings or other things in it that uh, go above and beyond the information you need to present to the user. Right. And some, a lot of that information is useful during development. Yeah. Uh, we need to be able to see see what the error was rather than just getting a page that says there was an error. Yeah. But uh, controlling when we show error messages and how, uh, we want to see them when we're producing and building software. We don't want to see them when we've, make, when we've made the finished product and it's out there in the wild because it, it's literally a war zone on the Internet. Literally a war zone. Yeah. And uh, so as, as you're going through... Um, Many software applications will have what they call a, a debug or development version. Is this uh, things that you talk with students about at CodeUp? Yes, yes, it is actually. Uh, we make when we're making applications, we make a, an environmental variable, uh, so that we use certain setting. We can turn on and turn off settings of the application, whether if we're working on it on our own machine, or when we're ready to to put this uh, put this code to use and put it out out in the wild. Yeah. So you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm your host, Brett Pyatt. I'm joined this week by Ryan Orsinger, a senior instructor at CodeUp, and we are working our way through uh, the OWASP Top 10 and uh, how to write some secure software, how to start thinking like a programmer, and, and thinking uh, on how to take these things and use the powerful tools of software responsibly. Uh, I think Ryan's uh, key thing to summarize this down, as we've discussed, is don't be lazy. Don't take shortcuts. Uh, you can cause bad things when you do those. Uh, so number eight uh, on this OWASP top ten list is another acronym. It is CSRF. This one I feel like has been on the OWASP top ten list as long as they've published the list as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yep. so tell the audience about this CSRF. What is it and why is it bad? Sure. Uh, CSRF is an acronym, stands for Cross Site Request Forgery. And what this means in a nutshell is we want to make sure that your web application, say we're serving a company intranet, an internal company application, uh, and we have links to certain resources. Uh, right. We want certain certain links to be protected, such that if somebody gets that link and and sends a request from say they got that link from an email and they didn't find that link from within the application itself, right? We want to protect against uh, malicious folks sending requests to the basically from from another place other than our own site. Yeah. Right. Uh, something that comes to mind here is if your application has forms. We don't want that form to be submitted by some other site masquerading. Yeah, masquerade like a like a man in the middle masquerading as as our site. Uh, so, uh, one of the ways to mitigate this is to make a, a token, make like an, a generated, randomized token, uh, such that we can mediate a session between a user and the site, so that we have one extra layer of saying, oh, this the connection from this user's computer. It is this user. They've connected before. It's not a stale token. It's not a bad token. It's not some request coming from from a link with some action with inside of it where, yeah. where the link would say delete something from the database, right? 
So yeah, and and, and uh, this is one that's got a, some security implications of this way, and, and there's a, a similar related uh, one is it say on your your website um, you were going to put up a blog post uh, about and it ha- include a funny video in it, mm-hmm. um, and if you you don't block other sites from linking that video content, all of a sudden you you may find out that it goes viral on the internet and now um, people are linking directly to that video on your website they're not reading your blog post they're not coming to do the thing you want them to do um, but they're running your internet bandwidth bill up um, and or they might be taking your website offline it's, uh, because there's so many people watching this video that you had stored inside your website now uh, without um, requiring folks to uh, be on your actual blog on your website to be able to view it um, this happens with images. Um, they, they call it hot linking, uh, where you have somebody else basically hosting that image for you. Or you, in the, most of the cases, the good people out there end up victims of other people using that you uh, as an image host for them. Uh, so this is, is one where form input, form validation, but then also as, as your web pages or websites uh, make calls out to different data objects, those data objects should be configured to only be accessed from the uh, websites and the domains the, that you intended them to be accessed from. Right. And see the CSRF um, vulnerability, generally, it's the easiest to protect from. Uh, really comes down to using software libraries that already solve this problem. The software libraries need to be trusted and up to date. Yeah. That rolls us right into number nine, which is... Uh, using components in your application with known vulnerabilities. So right. we, we talked a little bit about this, uh, what is a software library before the break, but uh, and then Ryan had just mentioned there as well, using uh, safe and secure uh, libraries and, and not using ones with, with known vulnerabilities. So, or if you have one in your software and a vulnerability is published on it, please go in and update your software and make a new push out to production. Right. Right. For, for instance, pr- programming languages themselves have different versions. Programming languages have vulnerabilities. The applications we build with programming languages have vulnerabilities. Operating systems like Windows, like Linux itself, Mac, these operating systems, they are software. They have vulnerabilities. And that's why, that's why you have software updates. Uh, keep your libraries up to date as a developer, your languages up to date as well. Um, operating system up to date and um, generally that that takes care of nine out of ten of the those kinds of problems yeah right as, as those uh, if we're in the PHP world uh, it's a uh, WordPress uh, and there's oh, probably a vulnerability that comes out every week for right. WordPress uh, so if you you happen to be hosting a WordPress blog yourself or if uh, someone's built one for your company and no one ever talks to you about patching or updating it you likely have problems with number nine here on the list. Right, right. And WordPress gets a gets a, a fairly bad rap for security. Uh, the PHP language as well gets a fairly bad rap for security. And generally, it comes down to all software has some level of insecurity. It's just like physical security. There's yeah. some. There's some. There's always a wide bypass. Right, which we've seen in in some in recent times. Right, uh, but uh, specifically with things like WordPress, we hear about security issues there a lot it's because those are very high value targets yeah and they have a large surface to attack 
Yeah, and it's it's why over the years, um, Microsoft Windows has been picked on quite right. a bit as well. It, it's it was eighty five or ninety percent of the computers out there. So if you're a, a bad guy, do I want to try to figure out how to break into five or ten percent of the computers, or do I want to figure out how to break into almost all of them? So the the hackers have spent much more time digging in and trying to find problems with Windows. The same thing happens to PHP and WordPress when you have websites like Facebook written in PHP. Mm-hmm. Man, if you can find a vulnerability in the PHP language. Um, that could make you as a very wealthy evil criminal because you oh, yeah. might be able to oh, get yeah. into Facebook's platform mm-hmm. uh, or all of those WordPress sites out there on the internet, which, uh, I mean, they make up at least a third, maybe half of the internet at the, at the point these days yeah. um, is running on PHP via WordPress, Drupal, uh, Joomla, and a number of these the popular frameworks. Wikis, Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a number of the wiki sites, all sorts of very popular things are all written in, Word, in PHP. Um, it makes it a, a very high-profile target rather than Scala. No one's trying to hack Scala. Sorry, Scott. The three Scala developers that are listening, I'm sorry. Oh, oh. Yes. Don't so, worry. They're still after the, the JVM. Yes, they <laughs> are going after the JVM, though. <laughs> so then uh, number 10 is unvalidated redirects and forwards. So this sounds similarly related. It sounds like a lot of these all tie back together. This cross-site scripting, this cross-site request forgery, and then this unvalidated redirects and forwards. A lot of these um, different takes on a similar problem. Right, right. It it really comes down to making making sure from a big picture, zooming out, that you're your inputs, that you're making sure your inputs are clean, making sure that your output, if for some reason you, you've managed to take in some malicious code, that you don't actually run that code when you output it. And uh, with uh, validation, we can validate all types of things. Validate that users are logged in, validate that they are logged in from the system that they last logged in from, right? We see this with bank websites saying, oh, we don't recognize this device. Yeah. And this, uh, this last one on the list, um, unvalidated redirects, we don't want to redirect, say like once you create an, a new account on a website, you're usually redirected to another page. Yeah. And it, while it would be convenient to redirect a user to a fully logged in state, and what I mean by that is as soon as we fill out, we go to our social network, we make the account. It's a nice user experience to go to the next page where everything's ready to go and you're ready to, to, you're logged in. What if that link or that redirect is not checking to make sure that you're logged in? Yeah. Right? You've just made your account. So it takes two, three extra lines of code for the developer to write to make sure, hey, once we've locked, once we've written this new user into the database, we want to make sure to log them in appropriately, yeah. Rather than just direct them to their profile edit page or their, um, you know, cr- finish creating the rest of your account page, because if that's automatic and it's not uh, authenticated with a password or, or in any way, uh, then you've just given a, a, a way in. You've created a shortcut session, effectively. Right. Yeah. To right. shortcut that session authentication, you you're jumping straight into the the middle of the app and allowing people to jump into the middle of the app rather than going through the the front door uh, mm-hmm. that has mm-hmm. the security on it. Yeah, and it it comes it comes down to um, not leaving your doors unlocked. Yeah, is what that is. So uh, as we had a, we talked a little bit before the the break, uh, CodeUp uh, runs in four month long sessions. So if I was listening to all of this and I go, man, I'm I'm been out there writing apps for 
folks, and uh, this stuff is uh, all things I'd like to learn more about. Um, where do I go to learn more uh, about CodeUp and uh, how I get enrolled in your, your next class? Sure. Sure. It's super easy. Go to CodeUp.com. Just code it. C-O-D-E-U-P, codeup.com. And it explains the entire program, how everything works, what to expect, what, uh, what a day in the life in the classroom looks like, and what uh, the outcomes look like for our students as well. Sounds good. So uh, for those listening outside the San Antonio area, uh, CodeUp is only in San Antonio uh, right. at this point. So you, you could come here to our wonderful downtown tech district and uh, hang out. Uh, while learning at CodeUp uh, around uh, over 100 other tech companies within walking distance. So uh, for those not aware, um, San Antonio has kind of been rapidly transforming from a, a healthcare, oil, and tourism-based economy um, into uh, one that also includes a, a ton of uh, Internet technology. Uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, uh, especially we're uh, the number two market now uh, outside of the uh, Washington, D.C. metro uh, there's more cybersecurity talent and companies and things going on in the San Antonio market than uh, anywhere else in America outside of the Beltway. So if you want to learn more about CyberTalk Radio and uh, any of our past episodes, if you're not aware what a drop test is, uh, you should check in and uh, listen to uh, some of those uh, past programs and learn. Um, I won't uh, tell you here. We'll uh, tease you a little bit and send you on through to the website at www.cybertalkradio.com. We've also got a page on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and uh, in YouTube. You can uh, see uh, all of our episodes uh, as well as uh, through the iTunes podcast service or uh, Pocket Cast for uh, those that want to listen from uh, an Android phone or a web browser. Uh, thanks, uh, Ryan, for uh, joining us this week, and I uh, look forward to you uh, helping a lot of uh, software development students uh, learn to write good applications for uh, the businesses all over America. Thanks, Brett.